Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure and honor to welcome you to our brand new series. This is called Life After Life, and as the name suggests, this discussion over the next four weeks is going to explore what happens next. What happens next? We know what this is. Well, okay, sometimes we know what this is. Sometimes we have no idea what this is, but hopefully we at least have some sort of understanding or some sort of awareness of what this is. The real question is what happens next? That big enigma, that big empty unknown space that lies beyond, beyond death. What happens next? That is the subject of our next four weeks together. So I want to thank you at the top. I want to thank all of you for joining me. I don't take your choices. I don't uh, take them lightly. In other words, I value the fact that you put your trust in me and in In Town Jewish Academy, that you value what we do and the Torah that we teach and the subjects that we cover to commit to four weeks of studying together. So I want to thank you for being here with me. I also want to thank for those of you that signed up today or try to sign up today. So I want to thank you for your patience. We had a glitch. It's still, I, I, my understanding is it may still be ongoing that uh, many people were not able to sign up today on our website. And I apologize for any frustration that that caused. I was made aware of it um, earlier today. And we've been trying to figure out, trying to, to troubleshoot it. My web person has been on it. Uh, she has not yet been able to troubleshoot it or to fix it, but hopefully that will be done very, very soon. So I want to thank you, those of you that persevered, that called me or emailed me and, and made sure not to just go with the flow and say, well, if I can't sign up, all right. But those of you that made sure to make it happen, I appreciate that. And I'm very happy that you're here along with, uh, with everyone else. Okay. I'm just checking my email now to make sure that I'm not getting any other messages. Uh, folks that want to join in. No, I don't see anything. Okay. So the topic again is life after life. What happens next? Story goes that a Jewish woman, she's about 70, 75 years old. She, she sets up a meeting with her rabbi. And the rabbi, she sits down, comes into the rabbi's office. And the rabbi says, how can I help you? And she says, look, um... I have one stipulation when it comes to my final wishes. You know, I'm starting to prepare or I'm looking over my will and looking over, um, you know, my final wishes. And I decided I have one stipulation, and that is that I not be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Now, the rabbi knows this woman to be a very proud Jew, and he says to her, I don't understand the nature of this request. Why do you not want to be buried in a Jewish cemetery? That's a very special thing. It's a very special mitzvah for a Jew to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. So she says, look, I don't want to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. He says, where do you want to be buried? Where do you want to be buried? She says, I want to be buried in Bloomingdale's. <laughs> she says, Bloomingdale's? What's Bloomingdale's? Why Bloomingdale's? She says, look, at least my two daughters, I know guaranteed, will visit me twice a week. Um, okay, that was the joke. And if you were unmuted... Jerry, are we good? No, I missed it. Did you get it? Nope. Try it again. Thank you. Good. We got the rim shot. Listen, thank you, Jerry, for being, for being always there with me in uh, these moments of, of pain, but also moments, perhaps, of joy for some. Look, the, the reality is that many of us are seeking to understand what happens next. So... With this field, with this course of study, I need to tell you that there is so much what I would call misunderstanding and misconception. 
there is a lot there are a lot of things that are discussed and said about after the afterlife heaven and hell reincarnation resurrection a lot of things a lot of themes out there that at least from a jewish perspective aren't exactly accurate so what we're going to do throughout this uh this four-part series is explore at least what judaism says authentic authentic judaism what it says about life death and the afterlife this will be called from biblical sources from talmudic sources jewish legal sources and of course the teachings of kabbalah and chasidut jewish mysticism which is the soul of judaism so if we're talking about souls and afterlife which is of a spiritual nature it makes sense to reference those teachings that represent the soul of torah i.e jewish mystical tradition so over the next four weeks these are the four subjects that we will cover number one and tonight's class is all about death and transition again death and transition our second session will be about heaven and hell our third and i have some good jokes to open that class our third i mean it's not a laughing matter nonetheless there you go our third session is all about reincarnation our third session is all about reincarnation oh did you hear that already that was a joke okay guys you got it listen i don't get feedback for, okay, i muted everybody but that's how we roll here okay um, and the fourth class is all about the resurrection and you should know what we're talking about here with resurrection is the resurrection of the dead aka also known as techiat hametim the resurrection of the dead which is one of the 13 primary articles of jewish faith and jewish belief it's not a fringe idea we'll talk about we'll explore it in full in our fourth lesson but i want what i want to let you know right off the bat this is a mainstream jewish concept the resurrection of the dead we're going to explore what it means why its parameters who's it for what's it about in our fourth lesson so in summary if you've ever wondered uh, oh sorry one of the 13 principles of faith the Yud Gimel uh, Ikrim, 13 Principles of Faith, as articulated by Maimonides based on classic Jewish thought. Now, here's the bottom line. If you've ever wondered about what happens next, folks, you are in the right place. This is where we are going to explore the answers. So I'm very excited to, to embark on this journey with you. Um, I also need to mention at the top, it probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. The best things that, you know, it's always good to say the things that go without saying. Um, this is obviously a very real topic, the topics in, in this series. It's a very um, raw topic. It's real, it's raw, uh, very sensitive. And my, the way I'd like to handle this is to speak very frankly about these topics, but always in a way of the utmost sensitivity and the understanding that we're not talking theoreticals. We're not talking in theory of what happens, you know, to, on some far off planet, but what happens to you and I? And what happens when you and I, God forbid, lose a loved one? What, what, what does it mean and, and what happens? So it's a real topic, it's a sensitive topic, and we're gonna approach it 
that way. Okay, so back to today's class, death and transition. So the first thing we're going to look at is what happens to us when we die? What happens to us when we pass away? And, and, and I know, I know that this is a somewhat uncomfortable topic. I mean, I think you're all here to have this conversation, so it's certainly not uncomfortable in this group. But in general, people don't necessarily like talking about death. I would say people don't like thinking about death. We try to push it off. Certainly when we're young, who has time to think about something that's never going to happen anyway, right? When we're young, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something that happens, you know, in stories. Nothing that happens actually to us or will happen to us, God forbid we think. But as we get older, we realize that, uh, that death is as inevitable a part of life as, as anything else. You know, as real as life is, death is also real. Death is a reality, and that reality, though, doesn't make it any more comfortable necessarily to talk about. In fact, I would say that death is something that many people do everything in their power to avoid, to avoid dealing with, talking about, thinking about. For the most part, death is an enigma. Um, we know the pain of loss. We know how it feels, perhaps, but what actually is happening, what actually transpires when, when someone passes away. And it's not a philosophical discussion, right? This notion of exploring a topic that we might not necessarily always want to be thinking about what happens when we die, this topic is not only relevant so that, you know, FYI, at, at a, you know, when you turn 120, this is what's gonna happen. By the way, I say 120 because the traditional blessing for long life in, in Judaism, Jewish tradition is, when you bless someone with long life, you tell them until 120. Moses lived to 120. He passed away on his 120th birthday. So that, that's become the traditional uh, wish of until 120. So when a person reaches 120, it's not just about us studying now so that you know, we know what's going to happen, just kind of like a, a preview. What we learn in, this, in these four, in these four um, lessons the ideal is that it radically impacts the way we live our lives now. Knowing what we'll know about death should, should radically impact and radically influence the way we live our lives in the here and now, right now. So it's not just a conversation that's good to know for the future, you know, because we're curious. So what's going to happen? So this is like a fulfilling or satisfying our curiosity. No, it's much more than that. This course is about understanding the nature of life after life and therefore understanding the nature of our life right now. So, nonetheless, despite all of this, despite the reality of death, despite how important it is to know about what happens next, not only for them but also for now, despite all of this, many of us are very afraid of this subject. Many of us are afraid of death. Someone once said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens, right? So people are afraid, afraid of death, afraid of what happens. Here's my question. And, and you all have the ability. Let me actually double check this. You should all have the ability to unmute. Yes, to unmute yourself. So I want to, I want to open this up to a conversation, a discussion. By the way, if you notice in your background that there's a lot of noise, but you want to unmute yourself and, 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 and join in the conversation, 
please, by all means. But just be sure to, un to, to mute yourself after you add to the conversation, just so that if there's noise, it's identified and it's, it's shut down as, as quickly as possible. Um, okay, so I want to open this up to a conversation. And I want to ask you the question. Why do you think human beings are so afraid of death? Why are we afraid? Not, and, and I want to clarify my question. Not hesitant to talk about death. That we already talked about. But why are we afraid of the notion of death? Ray, if we were a game show, you just buzzed in. Go for it. Um, I would say it's the fear of the unknown. We, we, we imagine things, and it's very scary. Okay, good, excellent. So, number one, why are we afraid of death? Because it's unknown. And when it comes to unknowns, human beings naturally are afraid of what we don't know. Good, excellent. I hate to leave the party here. Ah, ah, Joy says FOMO, fear of missing out. It's a party. I don't want to leave the party. It's just getting good, right? We're just getting things right, just getting in my groove. I don't want to go yet. I got more stuff to do. Excellent. Good. Two excellent ideas so far. Let's, let's keep, the, uh, keep the discussion rolling. Why are we afraid of death, Jerry? It's termination. It's the end. It's the end. It's the end. And who wants to be at the end? No fun being at the end. The beginning is nice. The middle is nice. The end seems a, a bit scary, right? Finality. Gewalt. It's, uh, it's, um, Sandrine, is this the end? I think, no, Sandrine just, uh, just, just texted me. She has to jump off. So I was making a joke, but it looks like she just jumped off. Okay. Um, fear of punishment. Fear of punishment. Excellent. Excellent. Um, good. That might also be a fear. In other words, the fear is... Gewalt, what's waiting for me on the other side? So I, I, I want to continue, but I want to make sure that I have, because I'm not writing this down, but I want to get, I want to make sure that I have it clear, clear in my head, all of the different ideas, because I'd like to touch on these at some point in tonight's lesson. So we had number one, the first idea was we have, um, what did Ray say? Ray, what did you say again? Remind me. Fear of the unknown. Good. Fear of the unknown. Dr. Maxi said, who wants to, to leave the party? Don't want to leave the party. Jerry said finality, right? It's, it's, it's the end. And who was the last one that just jumped? Adina Malka said, what's, and what's awaiting us on the other side? Gewalt. I mean, what, 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 like fire? Who wants that, right? Who wants um, some dude in a red outfit with a pokey situation? That's not, I don't think that's, I'm not, I'm not running to that. I'm, maybe I'm a little bit afraid of that. Excellent. All right, Cookie, you got something? Yeah, I think a painful death. I think we, we've seen so, so many people die in an unpleasant, extended way. So that, that's how I feel anyway. I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to suffer at the end. Excellent. Excellent point. Very, very well said. Um, the physical pain, the physical pain or anguish, God forbid, that might be very scary. Not wanting to face... A very painful death. Good. Anyone else? Anyone else? Michael, you look like you're leaning in. Yeah. Uh, regrets that I haven't done something in my life. I haven't told somebody something that I should have. That kind of thing. Excellent. Excellent. Unfinished business. Unfinished being business. Separated, being separated from your family, from your children, from your loved ones. Excellent. Leaving people behind. Leaving loved ones behind and not, not knowing or not having, maybe not having that connection. Wow. This is... I'm, now listen. I... 
if you did, if you weren't afraid on some level before, at this point, I'm just saying these are such good, really powerful. I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not even, I'm not trying to make light of it. These are really powerful ideas that you're all sharing, and these are real, these are real um, sources of, of at least concern. We can say, Steve, you have something? Oh no. Okay. Oh, yes, I do. Lack of control. Lack of control. Excellent. Good. What do you mean by lack of control? Just not, it's, in life we can control, but we don't know how, when, and what, and, and right? Even the immediate before, as someone just said, you know, you're, you're ill, you're in pain. Right. Uh, and what's going to happen? You know, you, you don't have any control of anything. Excellent. And then what happens once, once you do this? Right. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Good. Anyone else? Well, I've got one. Mark, go for it. What if we were wrong? <laughs> will we? Will we ever know? Uh, good, excellent, right? What if we were wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Allison. Having having just experienced and gone through eighteen months of mourning the loss of my father, mm. it brings up every one of these points for me. That's why I enrolled in this course. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. Every one of these points. Yeah. I'm a grandmother. I have four young grandchildren. I don't want to leave them. Right. I'm dealing with all of the feelings I have about grieving the loss of my parent, watching him die. Pat, yeah, I mean, all of it. It is just huge. It's humongous. It puts it right in my face. Right. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And, and, and I'm sorry for your loss. And, uh, and my hope is that somehow through this course, not that, not that this course could ever or anything could ever replace a loved one and, and, and fill that hole, but somehow perhaps uh, the goal is to have a perspective through this course. But I'm very glad that you're here with us taking this course. Thank you for sharing that. So we have a lot of reasons or a lot of um, elements that might play into our fear of death. I want to focus on. Right, yeah, Marsha. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, maybe, maybe being alone, even if you have people. You know, there's this ultimate facing the the finale. Right. Being alone with them. Uh, do you mean being alone at the end or after the end, or both? Maybe both. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Good. Very powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Business. Sorry? Unfinished business. Yes. Yeah. We actually had that before. Michael mentioned that. Good. So I want to focus, I want to focus now on one, what I think is one of the, one of the more power, well, they're all powerful, but one of the powerful fears that many of us have regarding death. And specifically, I'm referring to the fear of it all coming to a crashing end. In other words, everything that we know will be gone, and then what is left? And, or maybe, perhaps, is there anything left? The fear that maybe there, there is nothing on the other side. Maybe the fear that everything, our existence, our universe, our reality, 
will come to a screeching and abrupt stop. And that itself can be very, very uh, troubling and very, very fearful. Very, uh, did I matter? Did I matter and did my life matter? Did I matter? Yeah. But I want to focus specifically on this notion of the fear of it all ending. The fear of it all ending. Of everything that I know, everything that I love, everything that I am aware of, all of it ending. And maybe I like this too much for it to end. And what does it mean that it ends? So here's the first big idea of this course. And this is the first big idea. If, if we talk about Judaism and life or life after life, here is the first big idea that you need to know. And that is that death is not the end of life. Rather, it's a transition into a new state of being. And the reason for this, the reason for this is, is because death does not signify the end of the soul. Now, this course is not about establishing the existence of a soul. It's not about exploring all the contours of what a soul is and why a soul is and where a soul is and who a soul is. It's not exploring the soul per se. Because that's really another course of conversation. We would need, and we've done courses on the soul before, we would need another four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, just on the nature of the soul itself. So I'm going to use the word soul, and I know, I know that if we don't have a background of what the soul is, maybe it's a little hard to place. But know this, the soul in Judaism is life itself. If you look at the difference between a body that's alive and a body that's no longer alive. One moment prior, the person was breathing. One moment later, the person is no longer breathing, right? So you have life and then no life. So what is different? What distinction is there between the before and the after? Understood from a Jewish lens or through a Jewish lens, what this means is simply this. Before, in the moments prior to death, the soul, which again is a euphemism for life, the life force, was animating, enlivening, giving life to the body. Death marks the moment when the soul, which again is symbolic or, sorry, synonymous with life, when the soul is no longer giving its life to the body. But death, although it marks the end of the body's animation, movement, consciousness, it doesn't mark the end of life itself because the soul doesn't die. And that's the first big idea. Souls... Hold on, hold on one second, hold on one second. Souls don't die. Souls and bodies might unplug and uncouple, perhaps. But souls don't die. Soul, a soul is a piece of God. Just as God is life, the soul is also synonymous with life itself. So a soul doesn't die. 
the soul just transitions into one form of life to another form of life. Let me give you an example. I'm going to open it up for questions in a moment, but I want to make sure that the points that I'm trying to make are coming across in, 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 in ways that are not disjointed, in ways that, that are being delivered, hopefully, um, whole pieces of, of these ideas. The example that I want to give is a caterpillar that turns into a butterfly. So the caterpillar goes into the chrysalis. Um, and at that point, one could say the caterpillar dies because the caterpillar does not emerge ever again. The caterpillar is gone. There is no longer a caterpillar. And from the perspective of the caterpillar, the caterpillar cannot imagine life as a butterfly. That's almost absurd. That's unheard of. Because all it knows is caterpillar life. What does it know from being a butterfly? So it crawls into the chrysalis or it goes into the chrysalis. It can't imagine life as a butterfly. Life as it knows it as a caterpillar dies. But of course, you and I know it's not death. It's rather life, albeit in a different form, in a new form. One might say in a higher, more evolved, more beautiful form. But that's already a judgment. But let's talk facts. The fact is that the caterpillar, as a caterpillar, dies. But the caterpillar evolves into a butterfly, and as such, it does live on. You see, on one level there is death, and on another level there is no death. From the perspective of the body, and this is the key idea that I'm trying to convey, this first big idea of Judaism. From the perspective of the body, there's death. From the perspective of the soul, there's no death, only a new form of life. And so from, even from the perspective of the soul, there's a shift. Because the soul before, in our lifetime, at least the way we perceive life in the here and now, the soul is a partner with the body, and that's what defines its life. Soul, body, partnership. After death, the soul uncouples from the body, continues to live, but in a different form of life, a life removed from what we might call the spacesuit of the body, to put it into different terms. Think of the soul... Let me use a, a NASA astronaut example. You know, the big thing nowadays, well, one of the big things in technology is space travel. You know, there's privatized space travel now. You can, at some point, you can pay some money and uh, go to the edge of space, maybe even to the moon if you get lucky, maybe to Mars if you got the time, whatever, right? If you got, if you got a lot of time. So privatized space travel, it's all the rage. Everyone sending rockets, all the big companies and the big, uh, the big, the, 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 the big Here's the idea. A human being, a body, cannot survive in outer space. You just can't. Put a person in outer space, unprotected, can't survive. So how do astronauts do it? Well, you and I know, right? You and I know how this works. You put on a spacesuit, specially designed suit, pressurized suit with the right protection, the right movement, it's a very specific, a very tailored suit to the person, 
to the conditions, and that's how the person survives in outer space. That's how the astronaut survives in outer space. A soul, again, we don't have time to go into the nature, the contours of a soul. A soul, which is a very spiritual, divine, godly being, cannot survive a moment on planet Earth. It cannot survive. It's like, it's like, it's like shooting a person, it's like projecting a human being into outer space. Will not survive. Will not be able to break through the atmosphere, gravitational pull, nothing not happening. A human body will not be able to withstand any of those conditions. Unless... They're in a proper capsule, spacesuit, rocket, etc. God sends a soul below. God sends a spiritual powerhouse below into our physical environment. It cannot survive. The way it survives is inside the spacesuit. What is the spacesuit? The spacesuit is the body. The body is the spacesuit of the soul. Life as we know it right now, our consciousness right now, is an amalgam, is a combination. In the language of Judaism, with regards to relationships, a shidduch, a match between soul and body. Soul gives the life, and the body gives the spacesuit. Death marks the discarding of the spacesuit. The spacesuit falls away, and life continues on. The spacesuit drops off, and the soul continues on its journey. So here's the idea. Death is not the end of life. It's a transition of life. Away from body-soul partnership to a soul proprietorship of soul. It's drop the partner, right? It used to be, right? If you have any questions, come to Soul and Body and Co. Now it's just soul. Soul Inc. That's it. It's just soul. Tonight, we're going to explore exactly this transition, what it means, how it happens, the process. We're going to get involved very, very deeply into this. But this is the framework. This is the essential framework. Now, I want to quote John Lennon. John Lennon once said the following, I'm not afraid of death because I don't believe in it. He said, it's just getting out of one car and into another. And you know what? It's kind of powerful. And you know what? It's kind of Jewish also. It's you get out of one car, you get into another. The only difference being that you're not getting into a car. Whatever. Besides for that, it's perfect. Because you're not going from, into, from one body into another body, into another spacesuit. Don't worry, we'll talk about reincarnation. Hold on. Hold your horses. I hear, I hear reincarnation at the tip of your tongues. What about another body? Lesson three. Hold on. Hold your horses. Um, death marks the discarding. It marks the relinquishing, the letting go of the spacesuit and the re... What's the word I'm looking for? Kind of reclaiming a soul-centric existence. It shared its existence before. For 120 years, it shared its existence with a body, giving it life, giving it purpose, giving it meaning, etc. And now, it lives on its own, holy as a soul. Before we continue with questions and discussions, I need to share 
the following letter with you. If you have your PDF printed out, please turn it to page number two and text number one. If you have it open on your computer or on your phone or on your tablet, open it up to page two, you guessed it, text number one. If you have neither, don't be concerned, don't panic, nothing to be worried about, certainly not a PDF. Yeah, we have other things to think about, not PDFs. Take a look at text number one. I'm sharing my screen with you and uh, you can read it as you wish. There are many, many different ways that you can follow along. Here we go. This is, so you know, an excerpt from a letter written by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who's, by the way, whose yard site, 26th anniversary of his passing, is coming up um, Wednesday night and Thursday. So tomorrow night into Thursday is the third day of Tammuz. This is a letter that the Rebbe wrote in 1974 to a war widow in Israel. I'm going to read it. With pain, I was notified of the tragic death of your dear husband while fighting to defend the Holy Land. May you and your family know of only good in the coming days. Although you may have... Oh, it should be heard. I apologize for the typo. Although you may have heard these words from others, I would like to express the following thoughts from my heart, which are not, include, which are not intended to explain the tragedy, rather only to alleviate some of your grief. What is it that really forms the basis for the love and communion between two dear friends, between husband and wife, or between children and their parent? Not the physical body, which is flesh and bones and guts, but the characteristics of the spirit, the true essence of man. It is only that man communicates with his fellow through the body and its limbs, through his eyes, ears, hands, organs of speech, etc., man gives expression to his thoughts, feelings, and the characteristics of his spirit. And obviously, it is they, not the bodily tools of expression, that constitute his true essence and being. Listen to these words. A bullet, a shell fragment, or a sickness can damage the body, but they cannot hurt or affect the soul. They can cause death, but death is only a separation between body and soul. The soul continues to live eternally. It continues, listen to this, it continues to have a connection with the family, especially with those who were especially dear and beloved. It is only that the members of the family living in this earthly world cannot see the soul's reaction with their flesh and blood eyes, nor can they touch it or feel it with their hands for the physical connection has been broken. This is a very powerful letter. This is a very powerful letter and it summarizes, not only summarizes, it, it, it captures so powerfully the classic, traditional, and very, very important Jewish perspective on death. Death does not mean the end of life. Death means a cessation or a separation between body and soul. And the body discontinues, if you will, its animation, its form of living, but the soul continues to live. And the soul, and here's the key idea, the soul represents the main identity of who a person is. Your character, your thoughts, your feelings, your loves, all of that is not a body. It's not a body or an organ or a piece of flesh 
right, or a piece of bone. Your personality, your being, is tied to your soul, not to your body. It operates for, the, for 120 years through the medium, through the tools, through the space suit of the body, but never confuse who you are with your tools of expression. Two different things. There's who you are, and there's the tools that you use to express yourself in a physical reality, and those are not at all the same thing. So, who we are doesn't go anywhere. Who we are, in fact, only becomes enhanced because our body actually limits, limits our expression. How often is it that we can't find the tools to express ourselves because of our bodily limitations? How often does pride get in the way of really expressing how we feel about someone else? How often does guilt get in the way of expressing how we truly feel about someone else? How often do physical limitations, time and space, get in the way of truly expressing how we feel about others? And how powerful a notion to think that after 120 years, all of the drawbacks, all of the limitations will be taken away and all that's left is you, powerfully you, and only you in your fullest measure. That's what death is. And that's what life after life is. Don't worry, we have more to talk about. This is the first point. Life after life means the soul continues to live. If you want to phrase it this way, it continues on, let me add these words, uninhibited and unencumbered by the body. You know, an astronaut requires a spacesuit in outer space. You ever try to walk in those things though? You ever try to schlep around the spacesuit? I haven't because I'm not an astronaut. However, it does not look that convenient. I'd rather move without a spacesuit and space shoes, gravitational pulls. Who needs it? Weighted shoes? Pff, forget about it, right? The spacesuit ultimately weighs down the astronaut and the body ultimately weighs down the soul. Not to say that we don't value life because we certainly value life. Every moment that we have here, soul together with body is absolutely precious. And we'll talk about that as our lessons, as our sessions go on. But here's what you need to know. Death is not the end. Death is stepping out of one car and into another, stepping into a new, a new stage of reality. A stage where you continue on as you are without the body stuff getting in the way. So, who are you? Do you cease? Do you end? No. The real you continues on. Maybe the not real you, maybe that has uh, uh, an expiration date, but the real you absolutely continues. Remember that show, Will the Real So-and-So Please Stand Up? What was that show? Who, who remembers the name of that show? To Tell the Truth? No. To tell What's the my truth. line? What's my line? What's my line? Yeah, that's it. There you go. What's my line? Listen, whose line is it anyway? Here's the bottom line. See, lines. Death marks a transition. It's a transition from body-centric life to soul-centric life. It's not the end. It's the beginning. The beginning of a new reality of life. 
as, as, as far as the concerns that were raised earlier, about an ending, about losing connection, losing identity, I hope that these first opening words, this first presentation of the Jewish notion of death, um, will ha have addressed those ideas. Let me open it up. Let's take one or two questions because I will tell you, we have a tremendous amount of material to get to tonight. Next week is a different topic. So I only say that if you have a question that you need to ask, please ask it. But let's keep it, let's keep it on point and let's keep it, let's keep it focused. Question, uh, uh, open it up. Yeah, Cookie, go ahead. Okay, it's, it's a comment. What makes this very believable to me and um, acceptable is that I feel that way about my father. You know, haven't we all lost someone whose presence we really still feel with us? So that, that all kind of comes together as, as a truth. It makes it very believable for me. Thank you very much for sharing that. Thank you for sharing yeah, that. Very yeah, powerful. I can't, I can't see him, but he's with me. Yeah. I will tell you along those lines, I think we can all relate to this notion of even in the physical, even in our stage of life right now, souls and bodies in the spacesuit, um, where when, when you think about a loved one, you can feel sometimes their presence, even though they're physically not here. What is that? What is it? And, and that's us through our spacesuit. We can still, the, the spirit still seeps through, let alone when the spacesuit is no longer in the way. Um, Irena, I know you had a question before. Do you want to jump in? Irena, I think you had... Hi, sure, thanks. I, sure. You know, that I think you answered one of the uh, things that I always struggle with is whether the soul, it's the soul of the person and what are the attributes, you know, I mean, no one eats bagels and cream cheese up there. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? That one. Yeah. So what are the things that keep, you know, the person being the person right. who I miss or who I, you know. Excellent question. And I think you answered the question in your question. And that's the best question. The best question is the one that when you look at the question, you see the answer. The answer is a soul is the true you. Not the bagels and cream cheese, although, listen, if that's the true you, I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to stand between someone and their bagels and cream cheese. I would never do that. But, listen, we know... What, with ourselves. We know who the real we is, right? And we know that sometimes people have no idea who we are, right? We know that people get us wrong all the time. We know that we're misjudged. We know that we're misunderstood. We know that people don't really even take the time to really get to know us. <laughs> sometimes it's hard to get to know ourselves because we don't have the time. But who is us? It's what we love. It's what we believe in. It's how we think. Not the physical stuff. It's the stuff that's a little bit beyond the, uh, the temporal. So, it's hard in our reality because it's so intertwined, because soul and body are so intertwined. It's hard sometimes in our minds because our ideas are now enmeshed in our physical brains. Think about it, right? We don't have pure thoughts and pure ideas. All of our thoughts and ideas are, um, as they exist, working through the physical piece of it. So even in that context, it's a little bit difficult. But here's the point. The, the overarching point is, that if you could separate 
If you could separate the outside from the inside and focus just on the inside, that's who you are and that's what lives on. Um, Adina Malka, I know you wanted to say something before. Quickly, go ahead, please. When um, my soul leaves my body, does my soul know it's Adina Malka or is it just some floating neutral thing? Yes. Every soul is particular as, it's, as much as it's universal and part of a, of, of a greater whole. It's also very particular and it has its own identity. So you will not fade into the white and become anonymized, if that's a word, or anonymous. You retain your identity and your personality, your soul personality. Yes. Um, Dr. Maxi, go ahead. So my question is... Does the soul have a hard time? Is my soul going to have a hard time leaving because I hate to leave behind the people I love and I am attached to? We're going to talk about that in a moment. We're going to talk about the disintegration, how the soul, how they, how the two sides or the two parties um, uncouple. We'll talk about that and we'll talk about the separation anxiety that 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 is that is part of that process. We'll get there and right after we get these questions, that's exactly the next stage we're up to. Um, so it's a perfect segue. Go ahead, June. Um, isn't it so that when somebody's passing away, the soul, now I know I forgot what I was going to say, the soul stays there above that person and stays there for a long, long, long time. It doesn't let go. We'll talk about that also. We're going to talk about the specific form of transition. Yes, and there are different time periods. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Yes. Yes, we're getting, we're getting there. Okay, let's continue because I feel like as we go on, a lot of the questions or the ideas that you might be thinking, a lot of them may be addressed in, a, uh, in, in, in very short order. Okay, so let's move on. The next step of our conversation is regarding the actual transition process. So let's get to the transition process. The transition of a soul away from a body. The transition of the soul away from, we always use the feminine when talking about a soul. Neshama, Hebrew for soul is feminine, uh, feminine, the feminine gender. So the transition of a soul, her leaving her spacesuit is a gradual process. Yes, the process begins, in a sense, in somewhat of a sudden way, but as you'll see soon, it unfolds really in a gradual step-by-step -step process. Jewish thought, Jewish tradition identifies five very specific stages, which we will talk about very shortly. In fact, you actually have... Top of page three, I'm not going to show it yet. If you have it, top of page three, five stages of soul transition. But let's talk about, let's talk about that now. So here's what you need to know. The first thing is that the transition itself, before we get to the five stages, right? I jumped ahead to show you that there are five stages, but let's move back a little bit. Let's move back to page two in the handout. First thing you need to know is that the, that the, Transition out and away from the body is not a pain-free transition for the soul. I'm not talking about the pain of the body. That's, we're not talking about the body right now. I'm talking about for the soul itself. The soul's experience is typically somewhat of a difficult one and somewhat of a painful journey or separation. 
Why is this and how is this? The first thing we need to do is establish that this is indeed the case. So what I want to do is, once again, I'm sharing my screen. Text number two, this comes from the Zohar. The Zohar is the primary book of Jewish mysticism, of Kabbalah, Jewish, uh, Jewish spiritual thought. Text two, Zohar 388a says, Nothing is as hard for the soul as its separation from the body. Nothing is as difficult for the soul as its separation from the body. This is deemed objectively to be something that is hard, something that is difficult. Why? The question that everyone asks is why? Isn't it a happy occasion if you look at it from the perspective of the soul? Isn't it a positive thing that it no longer is schlepping around this spacesuit everywhere it goes? That it no longer has to you know, entertain the whims and the fancies and the distractions of the body? That it's no longer encumbered? That it's no longer shackled? It's no longer limited to the perceptions, the moods, the limitations of the body? Isn't that a positive thing? So why? Why do we say that it's difficult for the soul when it separates from the body? Why is it hard? Why is it difficult? Why is it painful? And the answer is very simple, and Dr. Maxi mentioned it before in her question. As I said before, a good question is really an answer and an insight. And the answer is, the reason why it's difficult for the soul is simply because in its 120 years, working with the body, it gains an appreciation for the body. It gains an attraction, if you will, to the body. It gains an association with the body. It identifies with the body. It begins, perhaps, to enjoy what the body enjoys. You know, it's kind of like the odd couple, but after a while, you get used to it, right? Hey, you like pizza? I like pizza. I'm not saying the soul likes, likes pizza, but I'm not saying it doesn't either, right? So. After a while, the soul is conditioned on some level to at least, at the very least, be familiar with what's familiar and enjoyable to the body. So here is the simple algorithm. Here is the simple formula. You ready? Simple formula. The more a person, which is the combination of body and soul, so us, you and I, the, with, with the dual action going on right now. The more a person lives a body-focused life, the more a person bends the soul toward the direction of the body, the more the soul trains itself to identify with the body, the more we identify with the body, the harder it is for the soul to let go. The more the soul leans in toward the body, the harder it is to lean out and to let go. If during our lifetime we understand the role of the body and we don't take it so seriously, yeah, you're hungry, don't worry, you'll eat. Yeah, you're tired, don't worry, you'll have plenty of time to sleep after 120, don't worry, right? Don't worry, you're feeling a little moody, a little this, that. If you don't take your body so seriously, and if instead you pursue the real important things in life, the spiritual things, the soul things in life, not that it's pain-free, but the soul will have an easier time letting go of the body because anyway, the life was lived with the knowledge that the body is only temporary and it's not the main thing anyway. 
It's secondary, not primary. So the soul will have an easier time lifting out from the body. You know, sometimes you, uh, trying to think of a good example, like you get a stain on a piece of clothing or on a couch or something, a fabric. Sometimes it hits just right where you can maybe peel it off. Is that even a thing? Let's assume it is a thing. I don't know if it's a thing or not. But maybe you can, like some sort of like, you know, dirt or whatever, and you can just kind of scrape it off and it doesn't do, you know, it, it, it lifts. Not that it doesn't require a little bit of effort, but it doesn't, doesn't leave a residue. Sometimes it's saturated in and there's no way to lift it out cleanly without a bit of a scrub, without, uh, you know what they call the things, at least the old school washing machines. Remember the top loaders? Remember those before, the front, before front loaders? Who would have thought that a little direction makes such a big deal? Whatever, technology, science. If we put a man on the moon, if we invented spacesuits, we can figure out top loaders versus side loaders. Anyway, bottom line is, remember the old ones? What was the middle thing that went back and forth called? Remember? Remember what that was called? An agitator. Agitator. You know what agitator means? Yeah, you know what agitator means? It, it's, 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 it, it connotes being bothered or disturbed. Huh, or angry, right? It's, it's a painful, it's not a pain-free experience. And the message for the clothing is, uh, my friend, the shirt, you are about to be subject to the agitator with a capital A. So if you're holding on to that schmutz, to that dirt, you ain't going to be holding on to that any longer. Let me introduce you to the agitator, right? And then you put in the suds, at, well, you know, the detergent, and the next thing you know, you're off and running. The point is, you and I, the, based on how we, li we live our lives, you and I essentially dictate how that process after 120 years goes. Will it be smoother or harsher? Will it be more painless? Not fully painless, but will it be more painless or pain-free? Or will it be more painful? And the simple formula, simple algorithm is, how much did you make your body primary or did you keep your soul primary? Did you remember why you're here? Did you keep, did you remember that your, that your body is only the spacesuit for your soul to do her thing? Or did you forget and you made the spacesuit the Gansamacher, the whole, the, the whole deal, like, oh, this, look at the spacesuit. Oh, is there an astronaut in there? Who even knows? The spacesuit is here. My spacesuit, your spacesuit, feed the spacesuit, you know, mend the spacesuit. Did we become spacesuit obsessed? Or did we remember that there's an astronaut in there? So the formula is the more we focused or more we focus right now on the body, the harder it will be for the soul to let go. The more we focus on the soul, with the body understood to be just something to help it on its journey, the more easier it will be to let go when the time it comes to let go. This is the power that we have in our lives. This is the power that's in our hands based on how we live our life to dictate how our experience of the transition goes. Take a look at text number three. I kept my screen share because I want to jump straight into text three, again from the Zohar, same page. Observe that when a man is on his deathbed and at the point of departing for the other world, three messengers are sent to him and he sees what other men cannot see in this world. 
That day is a day of heavenly judgment on which the king demands back his deposit. Happy is the man who can restore the deposit just as it was given to him. If you and I, look at that last line, can restore the deposit in original condition, I have a Jerry Rice rookie football card. And if you don't know what that means, that's fine. I still have it. I got it when I was a kid, and I'm assuming it's still somewhere in my childhood home in Pittsburgh. I haven't checked on it lately, but my assumption is it's still there. I don't know what condition it's in. When these things are in good condition, then they have one, one set of value. In not so good condition, another set of value. The goal in life is restore the deposit, the soul, just as it was given. Original, pristine, mint, super mint, ultra mint condition. Perfect edges, corners, I'm kidding, right? Perfectly maintained and not sullied by, jaded by, um, whatever, by its experience in the body. And when that happens, happy is the person. What does that mean, happy? The transition for them, for their soul is easier. It's not just doing a favor for God, it's also doing ourselves a favor because the transition will be that much easier. If we are connected to the material stuff of life, if we're really stuck in the material stuff in life, it's going to be that much harder to let go of that. We'll miss it, understandably so. But if we lived our lives for a higher purpose, well then, we'll know that at this point, our higher purpose continues on in another reality. If you loved sushi, I'm sorry, there's no sushi on the other side. So you're going to be letting go and you might be sad. Your soul might be sad. If you lived life of higher meaning, there's higher meaning in the other realm. Very simple algorithm. Very simple. Text number four from the Zohar once again. Kabbalah. When the moment arrives for the soul to depart from the body, the soul does not actually leave until the Shekhinah, that's the divine presence, shows itself to it. If the person is righteous, the soul cleaves and attaches itself to the Shekhinah the Divine Presence. But if not, the Shekhinah departs and the soul is left behind mourning for its separation from the body. I want to paint this in perhaps, I don't know, uh, physical terms. Instead of Shekhinah, I'm going, to refer, I'm going to call it the light. I'm going to sound like New Agey. You ready? I'm, we're taking Kabbalah from 2,000 years ago and we're going to make it sound New Agey. It says, right before a person's passing, when that moment arrives, the soul is shown the light, the divine light. And the question is, will it go toward the light or will it lean back into the body? That's the question. If it goes with the light, the transition is smoother. If it leans into the body, the transition is less smooth. That's it. Very simple. What does this all mean for how we live our lives today? I'm pretty sure I said this about a dozen times, but I'll say it again just to make it very clear. What it means for us right now is we're encouraged to live a life that's more about what's really important. That's more about the soul, more about purpose, more about something higher than something lower, more about the other and less about self. When I say self, less about the body. More soul-centric, less body-centric. When we do so, that it's number one, it's living true to purpose. Number two, number two, it's... Um, it's going to benefit us when the time comes to separate. 
it's going to be that much of an easier separation. It's never going to be painless, entirely pain-free, but it's going to be a little bit easier. Now, when we talk about the, the, the stages of, of soul transition, the understanding here is, top of page three, that there is a gradual process by which this transpires. In other words, it's not like there's only one step. The soul was in the body. Now the soul has departed from the body. Now they have disconnected, and that's it. No, not so simple. There are actually stages. Because the soul is so um, trained, is so conditioned to be close to the body, to move away from the body happens in stages, progressively further and further moving away. So there are five stages of the soul transition. I'm going to quickly check the chat. Um, okay, we're good. Let's take a look at five stages of soul transition. Stage number one is, well, hold on, before we, before we do this, let me explain. What I'm about to show you on this, on this list over here is the timeline, the actual practical timeline of how and when the soul further uncouples from the body, right? There's, a, there's the first step out, but then it progressively moves further and further away from the body. How does that unfold? It unfolds in different stages, different steps that have a timeline to it. So here's your timeline. Timeline section number one is the moment of passing until the burial. So from the moment of a person's death, which marks the initial separation of, of body and soul, until the person is laid to rest, that is stage one. The next stage is first three days after the burial. Then it's the seven days after the burial, then the 30 days after the burial, and then the one-year anniversary, which we know as the yard site. So let's go through these stages one at a time. From the moment the person passes away, that marks, or the moment when a person passes away, that marks the most acutely painful or difficult moments of the soul because it's been used to the body, it's grown accustomed to the body, even someone who lived a very spiritual life, as we discussed a moment ago, nonetheless ate and drank and rested and was involved in other physical activities. So even someone who lived primarily a higher existence still had a lot of physical interaction, a lot of physical connections, and therefore death is profoundly difficult for the soul. Profoundly. It's, it's difficult for the soul. It's uncomfortable for the soul. And the pain is felt most acutely as long as the body is still around. As long as the body has not been laid to rest. As long as the soul can still be... The soul doesn't need... Let me explain this. The soul doesn't need eyes to see. And the soul doesn't need ears to hear. The soul doesn't need a heart to feel. The soul doesn't need a brain to understand. Are you with me on that? These are all the spacesuit pieces that we have to translate into our world. The soul doesn't need the physical components in order to have these levels of awareness. The soul can see, it can hear, it can feel, and it can think. The soul is aware of the body. When it is aware of the body, 
in a state that's no longer alive, it's not so easy for the soul. It's difficult for the soul. So the moment of a person's passing until the body is laid to rest is the time period in which the, the soul is going through the most challenge. It's the most difficult time because the body is around, but, it's not, uh, but it can't help the body. This is its spacesuit, and it sees it in a state of uh, unmoving and, 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 and non-responsive uh, non state. And that is difficult for the soul because it's been so connected with the body for so long. This is reflected in our Jewish morning practices. And what I'm about to share with you is this beautiful notion that as the soul experiences difficulty, challenge, and pain, and as the soul's difficulty, challenge, and pain eases up progressively through these various stages, that naturally affects the loved ones here on earth who empathize with the, with the pain of that soul and reflect that soul's pain with a response of its own in mourning. Which is why the mourners, the loved ones who have just lost a loved one, those who are still alive on this earth, that first, those first moments, or maybe a day or two, whatever it is, before the person is laid to rest, they are in the most severe state of mourning called onan. And on the state of onan, they are not, they, they, you don't even comfort the mourner on that stage. You don't even tell them, may you be comforted, etc. It's not a time for comfort. It's a time to allow that person to grieve and to feel the full extent of that mourning, not only their loss, again, not only their personal loss, but the pain that the soul of their loved one is experiencing at that very same time. The, uh, the, 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 the ones who are still alive here on earth are not mechuyev, are not obligated to any mitzvot at that time, as long as they're dealing with the uh, preparations for the burial, they're absolved of all other obligations. That's how important it is. And that's how distraught, and that's how, how, um, how painful that, that, that time is. Then, of course, we have the burial laying our loved one to rest. And then, pro and then after that, we have the first three days. Now, the first three days mark the next stage in the soul's uncoupling from the body. Because even after... The burial, even after the soul is no longer in and animating the body, the soul still finds it difficult to abandon the body. Because on some level it still identifies with it. Whether because of the physical activities that it shared or even because of the spiritual activities that it shared, like the performance of physical mitzvot. Either way, the soul identifies on some level with the body and finds it difficult to abandon the body, which is why we have text 5. Look at what the Jerusalem Talmud says. For three days, the soul hovers above the body. This is three days after the burial. The soul hovers above the body. Listen to this, considering whether to return. <laughs> Not that it has a choice in the matter, by the way, but it itself is trying on some level to get back. After three days, when it sees that the face, this is obviously referring to the physical face, has changed, it leaves the body and departs. 
but not fully. Because look at the Zohar text 6. All seven days of mourning, not just the first three days, all seven days after the burial, the soul leaves the house and goes to the grave, and from the grave to the house, and mourns the body. After seven days, it goes on its way to its place. So we had one text that spoke about three days of hovering near the body. Then we had another text, text 6, that talks about seven days of going back and forth from the grave to the house. Obviously, these are significant spaces. I probably don't have to mention it, but let me just mention it. The house is where, of course, the person lived. The body spent most of its time, and the grave is where the body is right now. So the soul goes back and forth for seven days and afterwards goes to its place, but not actually fully, because text number seven says, all 30 days after burial, the soul and body are judged as one. In other words, they're still considered to be a team. And thus, the soul is found somewhat together with the body. After that, the soul departs and the body erodes in the earth, which tells us that there's a connection for at least the first 30 days. The truth is, it's more than 30 days, as text 8 identifies from the Talmud Tractate Shabbat. For 12 months, the soul exists, sorry, the body exists, and the soul ascends and descends. After 12 months, the body becomes null. And becomes null. In other words, it, it um, decomposes, and the soul rises and does not return. It's not, it's not so simple, by the way. The soul does return. There are parts of the soul that, do, that, that are always around by, uh, by the gravesite. But understand this. We have texts, the last several texts, talked about three days, seven days, 30 days, and 12 months. And I know what you're thinking. Didn't I see that before? The answer is yes. Five stages of soul transition. We have before burial, three days, seven days, 30 days, and one year. Because what all of these stages represent are various stages of uncoupling or of disintegration. I don't mean like disintegrate, but I mean disintegration where the soul disintegrates or does the opposite of integrate with the body. The soul leaves the body slowly, slowly, slowly. It slowly lets go and it slowly accepts and embraces its new reality. I'll say that one more time. This is a process, these are various stages by which the soul lets go of the body more and more and embraces its new identity and reality. The more a soul identified with the body, the harder all of these stages are, but whoever it is will always have these five stages. Before burial, the most acutely painful time for the soul. The first three days, also painful. Seven days, 30 days, one year, it eases and eases and eases. Now this is completely focused on the experience of the soul itself that departed from the body. This is all from the perspective of the soul of our loved one. What about for us who remain? What about for the mourners? Well, in Jewish tradition, we have the very same stages. We have, like I mentioned, the before burial stage of mourning, the first three days with stricter rules. That Well, before burial are the strictest rules of mourning, most severe rules of mourning. Three days, seven days, 30 days, one year. Slowly, slowly, the mourning restrictions are easing up as you go through these five stages. And again, understand this. It perfectly mirrors 
the soul's experience. Our experience of mourning on earth perfectly mirrors and resembles the experience of, of, of the soul itself going through and dealing with its difficult uncoupling from the body. Now, let's look at how Jewish law describes the laws of mourning. Text number nine, Maimonides. Three days for weeping, seven days for eulogies, 30 days for observing the restrictions on haircuts and other five and the other five matters. So we don't have time to get into all the, all the laws of mourning tonight. You can certainly look it up in any, you can Google Jewish laws of mourning in the various stages, and you can find all of the details. Chabad.org has a whole section on that. There are many, many places, many resources to look to find that. That's not, the, it's not necessarily the intention of this course. We're focused more on the spiritual experience of the soul. But know this, as the soul experiences pain, we're also meant to empathize and feel pain. As the soul experiences less pain, we're also meant to reflect that and also mourn, I'm not going to say mourn less, but maybe mourn less acutely. Or the restrictions ease up a little bit as the soul becomes more comfortable in its new setting. So it's not just that we mourn for our loved ones. The implication of all of this, and I hope it's coming through okay, the implication is not just that we mourn for our loved ones, but we mourn with our loved ones because they too are experiencing loss, the loss of their body. And as they grow accustomed to their new reality and their new stage of life, we also become accustomed to their new reality and their new stage of life. And the pain on some level eases, not that the loss is ever fixed or healed, not that the hole is ever filled, but that on some level we're meant to ease up on these mourning restrictions, mirroring the acceptance that the soul has of its new reality. Take a look at text number 10, really powerful story from the Talmud. Take a look. If a person dies and leaves no next of kin to be comforted, 10 people go and sit in his home. In other words, let's say the person leaves no, no next of kin. So do you do a shiva? Do you do any um, uh, observance in the home? The answer is yes. 10 people should go and sit in this person's home. And the Talmud tells a story. A man died in Rabbi Yehuda's neighborhood. He was one of the great rabbis at the time. As there were no mourners to be comforted, no family, Rabbi Yehuda assembled 10 people every day and they sat in the deceased home. After seven days, the dead man appeared to Rabbi Yehuda in a dream and said, let your mind be at rest for you have set my mind at rest. What a powerful story. They observed Shiva. They observed Shiva. Usually the Shiva mourning period is the family in the home of their loved one ideally is sitting Shiva. And again, that's, we, don't have, we don't necessarily have the time to get into exactly the details of sitting shiva. That's a practical halakhic conversation, which is for a different course. But the point of this text is, look at what the spirit of this deceased individual said to the rabbi. He said, let your mind be at rest for my mind. You have set my mind at rest. In other words, you have eased it for me, so you also can ease up on your actions and your... Um, your mourning. As I've eased, so too shall you ease. And that really captures the essence of mourning. 
Mourning is not, as mu- is not really so much about us and us dealing with our pain as it is us empathizing with the pain that the soul of our loved one is feeling. That's the key point. It's that's the pain that we're focused on. That soul is grieving its body and we grieve along with that soul. And that soul is grieving a little bit less. So we ease up a little bit on our morning. Not that we don't miss the soul, but that as its pain, as her pain eases up, our pain eases because we're mirroring, we're reflecting her pain. Okay. This also speaks to the importance. I'm stop share for a moment so I can see you all. This also speaks to the importance of allowing the body and soul to naturally separate and not tamper with this process. And this is a very important point. Um, Rabbi Solis? Yeah. But what happens if you're cremated? Would that tamper with the process? That's exactly where I'm headed. Okay. Well, that topic is exactly where I'm, where I'm headed. So here is, here is the, uh, the deal. Remember, the soul is mourning the body. As much as we mourn the passing of a loved one, the soul itself, that soul is mourning its body that it was together with for 120 years. It's, it was its um, soulmate in life, or, well, that would be, you know, its body mate in life. It's mourning its body mate, and that's a real thing. We want to cause as least, as little trauma to the soul as possible. To take the soul's body mate and to utterly destroy it, to incinerate it, according to Jewish teaching, is profoundly traumatic for the soul. The soul itself is looking at the body, is hovering around the body. It's slowly, slowly learning to live without the body. To destroy the body is a very difficult, very, very difficult thing for the soul as taught in Judaism, as taught in Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. The body and soul, according to Judaism, both need a natural process to disengage from each other. Now, the reality is you mentioned cremation. More people than ever are choosing cremation today. So I think in the 1960s, there was something about three, three and a half percent of people opted for cremation. Right now, it's over 50%. And they say by 30, uh, sorry, not 30, 35, who knows what's going to be going on by then. But by 2035, the estimates are that it's going to be close to 80% of people will opt for cremation. And I, I need to mention three points on cremation. Number one, number one, in addition to the points that I mentioned before, which will be relevant in a moment. But number one, Judaism emphasizes time and again the value and the sanctity and the holiness of the body itself. So the body is not something to be discarded willy-nilly. The body is something that we revere. The body is something that we respect. Even though it's no longer being animated by the soul, it was a partner with the soul in all of the good things that the soul did. 
So how can we be, how can we so wantonly just discard with the body? It's a precious item. A Torah scroll becomes unfit for use. You bury it. You don't uh, rip it up and put, and put it in a, I was driving today in the neighborhood in Virginia Highlands and I saw, you know, a tree had fallen, maybe because of the storms. And they had these, you know, the truck, the wood chipper truck. Yeah. Yeah. The wood chipper truck. And so I was telling my kids, I was driving my kids to, you know, around the neighborhood. So I showed them, like, oh, you know what this does? The little kids. Uh, you take a tree, a, a, a tree trunk, you put it in, it turns into sawdust or it turns into wood chips. They're all excited. Yeah, for a tree, that's okay. You don't do that to a Torah scroll. Torah scroll becomes unfit. You, you feed it into a wood chipper. It's not respectful. You don't burn it either. You don't incinerate it. You don't, you don't, you don't put gasoline on it and torch it. You don't put it in an oven. What do you do with it? You lay it to rest with dignity, with sanctity, with tears. You lay it to rest. You bury it. The human body is precious. The human body is precious. The soul is the main source of life. The body is the spacesuit. Yes. I'm not going to retract that. But as a spacesuit, you know, you don't want your spacesuit to be holy. That's going to be a problem. Houston, we got a problem. If your spacesuit, yeah, you don't want that to happen. But on another, right, on a, for you and I, the spacesuit is holy. The spacesuit also, be, after 120 years, this, the body had an impression on the soul. Guess what? It works the other way also. The soul had an impression on the body. So we don't just eliminate the body just like that. Number one. Number two, the body's not ours. The soul is not ours. The body is also not ours. No one made themselves. If you did, I need, you, I need to see you after class to find out. No one made themselves, right? The way it works is God allows, God gives the gift of life, not only soul, but also body. Human beings haven't created the power of procreation. It's a divine gift. So ultimately, even the body is a gift from God. A gift, yeah, you could say that uh, you could do whatever you want to a gift, but maybe it's more like a deposit where God says, I'm entrusting this with you for a certain amount of time. Take good care of it. We don't, from a Jew, this is a Jewish perspective. I'm giving you a Jewish perspective. A Jewish perspective on, on the body is it's a deposit from God. We don't have the right to destroy it. We lay it to rest. That's all we can do. But we don't have a right to destroy it. And the third point, of course, is regarding the gradual, the gradual disintegration of, of soul and body, the, the gradual uncoupling. It's traumatic for the soul. How much more traumatic would it be to, to, for the soul to see its body? It's... Uh, it's, uh, it's co, co-worker or co, uh, you know, whatever the right word is, compadre, whatever. It's, it's, uh, it's companion to just be, be uh, re reduced to ashes. By the way, nothing that I said is an indictment on anyone who has been cremated, anyone who has opted or chosen to be cremated, because the Jewish understanding is that anyone who's opted for that didn't appreciate, didn't understand the significance of it. And if you don't know, you don't know. So this is, not, this is not besmirching or not casting a negative light on anyone who has opted for that, chosen that, or it happened to. Certainly not the six million Kedoshim, holy ones, who were incinerated in the crematoria in, uh, in, in, in the Holocaust. 
But what it means for you and I, sorry that you're taking this class now. Now you know. Now what? Right? But now you know what Judaism teaches. And Judaism teaches, number one, the body is sacred. Number two, it's a gift and a deposit from God. And number three, it's connected with the soul. We don't want to traumatize the soul. We don't want to destroy God's deposit. And we don't want to tarnish in any way or um, treat unkindly the body which has a profound measure of sanctity. Because of all of this, the Jewish tradition is to bury and not to cremate. Um, I'm going to share my screen with you. We'll do a few texts on the concept on the midst of a burial. Take a look at page number four from Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. Man goes to his everlasting home and the mourners go about in the street and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. The dust refers to the body, returns to the earth. The spirit refers to the soul and that returns to God who gave it. Text number 12 from Kabbalah. Reb Chaim Vital Eitz Hadat Tov. A work of Jewish mysticism. Text number 12. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Genesis 3.19. Man's body comes from the earth and is left with him as a deposit. Upon death, write deposit. The deposit must be returned to the earth from where it came. It came from the earth. It should go back to the earth. Text number 13. Mitzvah from the Torah. Mitzvah to bury. You shall surely bury him on the same day. Some people... Some people talk about, you know, some selling points for um, cremation is that, you know, maybe it's greener, maybe it's more, uh, I don't know, maybe it's this, that, or the other. The reality is, the reality is that uh, cremation actually releases a lot of uh, carcinogenic material in the atmosphere and, and, and according to some studies, use it, it uses even more energy than burial. So if you're looking at it from a green perspective, not necessarily is cremation any greener, especially when you consider the Jewish way of burial, which is very simple and natural, no chemicals, no embalming fluids, only really bi biodegradable uh, materials. It's, it's a very natural process. It's in fact the most natural process. Um, and it allows the body to go its way as the soul goes its way, and they both slowly transition away from each other. And a fourth point, which I didn't mention before, which I'll mention now, if we believe, and hopefully if you caught the beginning of today's class, you know that we do believe that there will be a resurrection of the dead, that the souls will come back in bodies, well, you got to keep the body around. We don't want, we don't want to um, in any way indicate that we don't have this, uh, this intention or this belief by cremating the body. So just a few things about cremation. It was mentioned, and I actually intended to mention it as well, uh, but now that it came up, certainly in conversation, a few concepts. Now, I want to end with one final point. This is something I get asked very often, and it relates to all the topics we've discussed tonight, which is grave visitation. Is it a Jewish thing to visit the cemetery? Is it a Jewish thing to visit the gravesite of a loved one? Should we do it? Should we not do it? What does it mean? Does it mean anything? Is it just for us? Is it for them? How could it be for them? What's going on? Well, hopefully by now you know that what is death? Death is the separation of body and soul. But 
There's always an attachment there. Even once the soul separates, it's still attached. It's still connected. Maybe not animating it, maybe not that kind of astronaut and spacesuit type fit, maybe not from the inside out, but it's still connected. We talked about the stages, the first, you know, the first moments until the burial, the first three days, seven days, 30 days, 12 months, the soul is going back and forth. It's still connected. Well, here I want to add one more piece. Kabbalah teaches that there are five dimensions of the soul. We don't have time to go through them all. Well, I'll mention them all, but I don't have time to explain them all. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chaya, Yechida. These are five dimensions of the soul. I'll say it one more time. Nefesh, from bottom up. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chaya, Yechida. Five layers of the soul. The lowest layer of the soul, the Nefesh, remains always near the body. Even after the burial, it remains near the gravesite. Says in Kabbalah that when you and I visit the gravesite of a loved one, or the gravesite for that matter of a tzaddik, of a righteous person that, uh, that we respect or are connected with, someone who made a great impact on the world in a positive way, when you and I go visit that gravesite, you and I are connecting with not just where the physical remains are to be found or were buried, but moreover, with the lowest, again, we don't have time to explain this, the lowest dimension of the soul, the nefesh, which remains in the cemetery or near the gravesite. I want to read to you this text that, that, uh, that, that expresses this, and then we're going to close out this lesson. Um, take a look at text 14. This is again from the Zohar. The nefesh. Is nefesh is the lowest level of the soul. The nefesh is present in the grave. It is among the living and is acquainted with their pain. At a time of need, it pleads for mercy for them, for the, the loved ones, the ones who are still alive, uh, still physical life with bodies. When the inhabitants of the world are in need, when they are in sorrow and they go to the cemetery, the nefesh of the deceased is awakened. It flies up. It soars up and arouses the Ruach, which is the next level of the soul, which in turn entreats God for mercy. The Holy One, blessed be He, then has mercy on the world. Final text, text 15. There was once a community, this is really powerful. There was once a community that wished to uproot and move to a different location. In other words, you know how communities move, you know, from one part of the town to another part of town. One of the deceased of that community appeared, to a dream, appeared in a dream to a member of the community and said, please do not leave us, for we take pleasure when you visit the cemetery. In other words, the, the, the inhabitants of the cemetery, one of them went to one of the people in the community and said, don't move the community. Don't move the synagogue away from the, from the cemetery. Don't leave us behind. Barzillai the, Gilad, the Giladite said, in Samuel, I would like to die in my own city. He said this because the dead are delighted when we, their loved ones, visit the gra their grave sites and request goodness for their souls. This improves their condition in heaven. And when we make requests that departed, they pray for us. These are very powerful statements, very powerful ideas, all taught traditional Jewish thought, classic Jewish teachings from the Talmud, from Scripture, from Kabbalah, this is what Judaism says about what happens next. So in short, in summation, 
what happens next? Part one, what, hap what do we learn tonight? First thing we established, first thing I explained is that life, sorry, death does not mark the end of life, rather a transition into a new type of life. Before life was comprised of soul and body, now life is a completely soulful experience. Does that mean that everything we know will end? Depends what you know. If you know sushi, yeah, that's going to end, right? If you know uh, houses and cars, I, I got some bad news for you. That doesn't exist on the other side. But love, ideas, relationships, connections, those things live on. Those are all eternal. And so, number one, the first point is the soul lives on in a different state in a freer state, in a bigger state, in a larger state, still connected as before. That's number one. Number two, the second point is the soul transitions away from the body in a step-by-step -step fashion. It doesn't happen in one fell swoop where the soul says to the body, see you later, it's been nice knowing you, gotta run, and that's it. No, the soul is actually sad to leave. It's painful for the soul to depart. And it takes a step-by-step -step process by which it further, further separates and is able to move on and move past its bodily experience. Represented by five stages of mourning of we the mourners who mourn our loved one, it's not mourning for them, it's mourning with them because the soul itself is mourning, mourning the loss of the body. We therefore explained we try to minimize the pain of the body itself which in turn would cause pain to the soul as much as possible. That directly affects the Jewish understanding and uh, appreciation of the value of the mitzvah of burial as opposed to cremation. And of course, we spoke about the idea that the soul is still to be found near the body, still connected with their loved ones, and still accessible. That's the really the, the last point that I wanted to make is the soul is absolutely still accessible. And like I said before, and I repeated a moment ago, even more accessible than before. Because before, to gain access, you might have had to go through physical channels. Now, you don't have any physical checkpoints. No physical barriers. You don't have to call. You don't have to write. You don't have to text. All you need to do is think. All you need to do is love. All you need to do is connect in ways that are meaningful. To do a mitzvah in the merit and the honor of, of a loved one. It's there are so many avenues of connection that no longer require going through the checkpoints and limitations of the body. So in summary, what we learned today is that how we live our lives now directly affects the experience of death and the, the um, disengagement, the uncoupling of soul and body. And it reminds us to make this moment, to make this life, this experience of life, this stage of life, as meaningful as possible. To infuse it with as much important things as possible. Yes, you can't get around sushi. Nor would I want you to get around sushi. But let's try to minimize, sushi is my uh, collected, uh, co you know, my catch-all for, for that stuff, in case you haven't noticed. Um, but let's, uh, let's remember what's really important. Let's remember what's really important. 
You know the story of Diamond Island? You guys know this story? There was a fellow who was very poor. He heard about this island, Diamond Island. Diamonds, wherever you look. He told his wife, I'm going to... She said, you're crazy. Do you know how many schemes and, and, and attempts you've tried? Never works. Diamond Island. Pah! He says, no, this time, this time for sure. It's like Rocky and Bullwinkle. This time it's going to happen. Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. So, yeah, he says, I'm going. She says, all right, come back soon. He says, I will. He goes. The ship, land, the ship uh, arrives in port. And he looks out at the, be at, the, at the beach, at the sand, and he sees it shining like he's never seen anything shine before. Sure enough, he steps on the beach, diamonds everywhere. Oh, this guy is now the happiest person in the world. He is shoving diamonds in every jacket, in every kippah, inside the ear, everywhere. Everything, every pocket, diamonds. He goes to the restaurant. He finds a kosher restaurant, he, Diamond Island. He goes there and he orders everything on the menu. And the waiter comes with the bill, massive bill from here till tomorrow. He says, no worries. Pulls out a big stone. He says, keep the change. The guy laughs at him. What's so funny? Ha! Huh, you think this is valuable? Let me guess. You picked it up outside. And it dawns on him. Yeah, he did. You know how scarcity works, supply and demand? You know that, right? You know, basic uh, economics. Okay. Yeah, the guy tells him diamonds aren't valuable here. You can't pay with diamonds. It's ridiculous. He's like, oh, no. Not again. Uh, what's, so what's the currency? He says, dead fish. Dead fish is the currency. Dead fish? Yeah, dead fish. You have a lot of dead fish, you're really rolling in it. It's like, and especially like old money, you can really smell old money. Whatever. So the guy says, dead fish. How do you get dead fish? Well, let me introduce you to the kitchen. You're going to wash all the dishes for the next week, pay off this meal, and I'll, I'll give you some extra dead fish. You'll get some money. He decides he doesn't want to be a failure now in this new place, Diamond Island. You know, he was a failure back at home. He doesn't want to be a failure here. He begins working in the kitchen, works in the restaurant, buys the restaurant, opens up other restaurants. This guy now has a whole operation. He's successful for the first time in his life, and he's making lots of dead fish. Finally, after a year, of earning tons of dead fish, he hires three ships, he loads up all his currency, all the dead fish, and he heads back home. And he sends, a t he sends a message to his wife, a letter to his wife in advance saying, meet me on such and such date, I'm coming home, and I've done very well, and she, and all the townspeople, because they're all excited, she's leaked the news, they're all standing at the shore as the ships, three ships, the Pinta, no, three ships approach, and, and, they can't stand the odor. Everyone leaves except for their wife and the kids because Nebuch, what can they do? They can't leave. It's the husband and she's wondering why the smell? What's the deal? What kind of ships? Where did he get this on clearance? What is this? Ali, uh, what is Alibaba? Whatever. Where do you get these ships from? What is going on? So finally, the ships pull in. They don't pull in. They say, stay there. We'll come to you. Or stay there and swim and clean off. And she says, finally, upon encountering her husband, what is going on? And he says, I decided to make it. And I made it. And I'm successful. And I brought back all the dead fish. And she says, are you out of your mind? He says, no, dead fish. And she says, are you listening to what you're saying? Because you're talking about that fish when I know that you cannot be talking about that fish. And then the full brunt of his folly hits him like a ton of dead fish. And he realizes that he had just wasted the last year of his life 
collecting dead fish, which have no value at home, have no value where he is now. And he begins crying. Well, the good news is, it has a end, good end to the story. Don't worry. The end of the story is, he found, they got rid of the fish, don't worry. Whatever, they, they gave it to a good cause or sent it back, whatever it was. And, um, but he found in his pockets, you know, after spending a year in the cuffs of his pants, the hems, the whatever, his pockets, the luggage, whatever, there were a few diamonds, and he was able to make it, he was, he was good. This is a powerful metaphor, parable, analogy, whatever you want to call it, for life. The soul is sent to our earth, put in a spacesuit, and the soul is told, collect diamonds. Those are mitzvot, good deeds, by the way. And the soul comes down into a body, and the first person it encounters, the person says, Oh, welcome. The person says, Oh, I want to do a mitzvah. Mitzvah? That's not valuable. Diamonds? Pah! Dead fish. Green paper. Gold shiny things. That's what's really important. And the soul forgets. It gets convinced. And it starts running after all this other stuff that's worthless. And then it comes back to the other side. And they say, no, how'd you do? I got all this dead fish. And they say, are you kidding me? Dead fish? That's what you spent your time doing. You collected dead fish. We sent you into a place with diamonds. You had every opportunity to, make the world, to, to, to lighten up the world with positivity and goodness and good deeds. What'd you do? You collected. You spent your time nine to five collecting dead fish. That's it. We don't, you can't bring it here. Luckily, in the story, the guy had diamonds. You know, you end up doing a mitzvah here and there anyway. So everyone does mitzvot. But this is a really a call. It's really a wake-up call. The story is set as a wake-up call and a call to action. You and I are in a world in which there are diamonds everywhere. Let's live a life collecting diamonds and not dead fish. Let's live this life as a spiritual life, which will make our journey home that much smoother. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for lesson number one. I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed spending this time with you. Um, I'm going to close it now. I'm sure may, some of you have questions. You can call me on my cell. You can text me. You can email me. We'll continue the conversation. Um, but I value the time that we spent together. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope it's been meaningful. I look forward to seeing you next week. Same bat time, same bat channel, 8 p.m. next Tuesday, Life After Life. The topic will be heaven and hell. See you then. Not see you there. See you then. See you then. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. We'll see you all. See you very soon. Take care. My pleasure. Bye, everyone.